Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com. And register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff, one of the co-hosts of the podcast, bringing you today a special reissue of an interview that I did in 2014 with John Muallam. Uh, regular listeners of the podcast will know that in addition to co-hosting this with Max and Aaron, I'm also the editor-in-chief of the Atavist magazine, and we have a book out. That book is called Love and Ruin. It's a print book. It's our first print collection. And one of the authors in that collection is John Moalem. He talks about the story in that collection, American Hippopotamus, at some length in this interview. And in that book, we also have stories by other authors who have been on this podcast, including Leslie Jameson, James Verini, who wrote the title story, which won a National Magazine Award, Love and Ruin. We also have Matt Scher. We have Adam Higginbotham and a bunch of other writers that I think you'll really like. If you like this podcast, I think you will like Love and Ruin. Please go out and buy it. If you buy it, your money goes towards supporting these very writers who write these stories that you love. And I should add that there's an introduction by Susan Orlean, who has also been on this podcast. So everything about this podcast is encapsulated in Love and Ruin, the Atavis Magazine print collection that's out now. So please go buy it. And in the meantime, here's John Muallam in our interview from January 2014, talking about American Hippopotamus and many other things. Hey, John. Welcome back hey. to the podcast. Thanks, Evan. You're, I think you're only the second repeat guest. Who is the first? Josh Behrman. Oh, no, you're the third. Behrman, um, Janet Reitman has been on twice. And it's only, it's only happened when <clears throat> a person was on before and then they had a big story come out that we wanted to talk about, get into the specifics of. Uh, and in your case, we're doubly going to get into the specifics of it because it's an atavist story. And uh, last time we talked, you hadn't written this out of a story, and uh, your book wasn't out. You were like in the middle of writing. Wild yeah, I was ones. still writing at that point. I hadn't even turned it in. I think I was what like the fourth or fifth guest, and I felt like the uh, the podcast wasn't um, it wasn't really established as like a a safe place to share. Oh yeah. Maybe maybe I was more. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I was more guarded. I think I was. I was definitely very self-effacing. I remember getting a lot of comments about that, so I'll try to be um, more cocky. Yeah, I mean, so that's not you. You weren't being you. <laughs> no, to be. just let it rip. <laughs> well, let's talk. I think we should talk first about um, about American Hippopotamus, which is the story that we just put on the Atavis, because I think there's a way to talk about it without it being too weird for listeners. I mean, it's a little unusual because, obviously, we published the story you wrote the story, so in some ways it could seem a little bit like a commercial for the story, but also maybe it's a rare opportunity to talk about editor-writer relationship in an intimate way from two people who have just worked in that capacity. I think so, also because I thought you uh, you played a pretty significant role as the editor in this in this story. That's you know that's in terms of shaping it, it from the beginning. That's not always the the case. Um, that's true. That's true. Yeah. So, so now I'm going to let you attempt to encapsulate what American Hippopotamus is a story about. Okay. 
American Hippopotamus is uh, the story of a brief uh, window around 1910 when hippopotamus ranching in America was almost a thing. Um, it was the, the dawn of this, uh, what was going to be a new era of hippopotamus ranching in Louisiana and across the Gulf Coast uh, to solve a meat crisis. There was a big shortage of meat in 1910 and it was a, uh, you know, a food crisis and, and a potential famine, but it was also kind of an existential crisis in the sense that America felt itself battering up against this kind of Malthusian barrier that it had never encountered before. Um, now, you know, the frontier was closed and there was a sense that, um, you know, this could be it. We couldn't, maybe we just couldn't keep growing as fast as we had been. And, and I guess this, the surprise of the piece is that the two, the, this partnership forwarding hippopotamus ranching as an idea, and, and the idea got pretty, pretty far. Uh, to the highest pretty, levels, highest levels of government. Levels. Yeah, the U.S. U.S. Congress um, had a hearing about this, the, the House of Representatives, and uh, it was basically the work of uh, three people, a congressman from Louisiana, and then uh, two uh, spies, essentially, two, two freelance uh, soldiers of fortune, freelance adventurers and spies, who uh, very recently had been sworn enemies assigned to kill one another. And so the story is a, a sort of epic story of espionage and hippopotamuses and a kind of double biography of these of these two men. And I, I genuinely don't know how you came across this story. Where did you find it? Right. So uh, good question. <laughs> um, I, so I, I read this book, Wild Ones, and I started that in the spring of 2010. And one of the first things I did was I got very obsessed with this uh, taxidermist named William Temple Hornaday, who was living at this time. Uh, he was uh, sort of the, one of the first conservationists, uh, first modern conservationists. And I was reading one of his books that was published in 1913. And it was a big, thick book that was just a big screed against all the terrible things happening um, and the way animals were being obliterated in America by hunting and so forth. And he had this little throwaway line that said, you know, how ludicrous is it that uh, this gentleman from Louisiana wants to bring in uh, hippopotamuses when we've already proven that we, you know, slaughter, you know, we've slaughtered the bison, we've slaughtered everything else. Why should we be trusted with something like that? And uh, I didn't really understand what that what that meant. And I started uh, kind of poking around and very quickly I found this uh, transcript of a of this hearing in 1910 before the House Agriculture Committee. Uh, congressman Robert Broussard, a Louisiana congressman who would put up this idea. And uh, this transcript was amazing. You know, it was amazing in that you had a very dignified group of people uh, talking about this ridiculous sounding idea with complete earnestness. And as you read the transcript, it actually started to make quite a lot of sense. Uh, <laughs> I found myself being really won over uh, by the testimonies that day. And uh, so I just sort of kept this transcript, you know, saved on my desktop um, and thought, you know, that's a pretty special document. Uh, and it was months later that it occurred to me to just even Google the names of the expert witnesses. There were, there were three witnesses and two of them, two primary witnesses uh, giving testimony that day. And, uh, you know, as soon as I did that, it was just within a matter of seconds, uh, these two names, Frederick Russell Burnham and Fritz Duquesne, uh, I was just kind of bowled over by the fact that they had been uh, sworn enemies, that they, they had this long history of fighting against one another in, in wars. Fritz Duquesne still makes me, I've, I've read that name thousands of times now, and I, it's, it's still funny to me, Fritz Duquesne, like, it's just a ridiculous name for an international man of mystery. Well, you may you may think so, but uh, as you know, that was uh, you know that was his given name. But actually, I think his aliases were much more <laughs> ridiculous. He has uh, uh, Von Gutard, Fred Bouquin, J.Q. Farn, Colonel Beeson, F. Krabs, <laughs> Fritters, uh, Frederick Fredericks was a, a kind of frumpy botanist from the Netherlands. I never heard of what is Fritters. What was Fritters? Fritters was actually, I think, in the FBI file. They just listed Fritters in this long list of, of AKAs. That's not uh, even a so name. So maybe a woman. I, I would like to imagine it was a woman who called him, you know, a lover or something who called him Fritters. I never found out what context he was Fritters. Ma Major Frederick Craven, 
he posed as Major Frederick Craven, who was a vaudeville critic in, in New York City for a time. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so Fritz Duquesne is actually, it's pretty, it's kind of the straight and narrow, I think. Yeah, it's well, funny. obviously, I mean, these guys were, and Frederick Burnham is, like, an incredible character, too, to stumble across. I mean, on his own, he's, like, you know, inspiration for the Boy Scouts and, you know, man of unbelievable feats and, He's yeah, called, he's really like, kind of the all-American hero, which is it's amazing that he's he's pretty much forgotten. I mean, I'd never heard of him, um, but at the time he seemed like a fairly well-known, um, you know, and he was an adventurer. He was someone that boys read about, you know, they read about his true life adventures and then they, you know, that was their childhood. They, they weren't reading about, you know, fictional people. They were reading about this actual guy who had fought in all these wars in Africa and, you know, wars with the Indians in the Southwest uh, of the U.S., um, and just lived a pretty extraordinary life, you know, the kind of life that I think we like to think of when we think of that era and, and kind of the West, but we don't actually understand that it would be a real life. You know, we think it's it's a kind of a romance novel kind of life. Yeah, I mean, these the both of these guys are, are, I mean, they feel a little bit like they're out of fiction. They, they, they're the kind of people that it's hard to see existing today, this sort of like international adventure sort of insert themselves in all of these you know, Zelig-like into all of these wars and, and political situations and, and weird scams and other things. And, and there are people, con artists, and there are heroes, but today you wouldn't have this kind of, like, breadth of, of life, it feels like. Right. I mean, I think that was what was so astounding to me. I mean, so, so after, I, after I figured out who these two guys were, um, at least a little bit, I mean, just, like, literally, you know, from just Googling their names and, and finding different things. Um, then I, I uh, at the time, I guess this, this was almost the fall of 2010. And so at the time there was going to be a pop-up magazine the, the, um, here in San Francisco, which you, which you Evan, uh, were at, you know, help edit. And, and Doug McGray started here. It's like a live event of uh, people telling stories and, and showing work and stuff. And so I thought, well, I should talk about this, this hippo story um, and I spent a little while just trying to, you know, pin down, like, how did these two guys who, you know, had they just, you know, less than a decade earlier had been in, in the Boer War in South Africa fighting against each other. Burnham had uh, just kind of up and left to help the British. Uh, and, and Duquesne was, was a Boer, which are these uh, descendants of, of the Dutch in, in South Africa. And so they were fighting against each other. They had this, this whole history of, of being enemies. You know, how did they wind up? as two expert witnesses for this hippo hearing. And to be honest, I couldn't really figure it out. And so I just got up at, at pop-up and, and kind of wrote a little something that, that set this whole thing up, but, but didn't really have any answers. Um, yeah, it was probably like uh, 600 words or 800 words. Yeah, a, a little bit more, I think. Um, but, but not, not by a whole lot. And it, it basically just, you know, I just threw up my hands and said, I have no idea how this, how this happened or, you know, was this some kind of scam by Duquesne? Was he trying to, you know, just get America to import a bunch of hippos to to laugh at us? Um, you know, what was his motive? I couldn't I couldn't understand any of it. Um, and then since then, just kind of chipping away at at archives um, and you know letters back and forth between all these people in various places, uh, kind of slowly pieced it together. Finally, I mean, somewhat. I mean, there's still a lot I don't know, I guess, but enough to enough to write a a story about it. And just to get into the a little bit into the like reporting, I guess quote unquote reporting because it's really you know it's a research. It's not like there's anyone alive for the most part, or their descendants, right? Um, right. So how did you how did you approach that? Like digging this stuff up, the archival work. Like had you done that stuff before going into the Stanford archives and all that sort of thing? I mean, I'd done a little bit of it. Um, you know, even a lot of the stories I've done for the Times Magazine have had history in them but you know mostly that it's been history that historians have already pieced together and and written about um i mean almost exclusively i have been in archives before but it's never been um i've, I've never gone in with sort of out any context without usually there's a story written down that you can read about it and then you go and find you know more details or you know the primary documents just so you can have have that clearer sense of it but this was a situation where i just really had no idea what was what was going on, which was really daunting. I mean, I like poking around in archives. I think it's really fun. But after a certain point, you know, so so basically just the, the mechanics of it. I mean, there's Fred, Frederick Burnham's papers are at Stanford and Yale. 
the congressman's papers are in Louisiana and then Duquesne left no paper trail really. Um, so, and, and the archive in Louisiana initially told me they had absolutely nothing about this hippo plan. I mean, that's the other thing. And not only are these people obscure, but this, you know, it didn't happen. We don't have hippopotamuses in Louisiana. So this was kind of a footnote in their careers as well. Um, and so initially the Louisiana archivist didn't, you know, he didn't even think they, there was anything like this in the papers. There was no subject file for it in the, in the archives. Um, and then about a year later, I came back to him once I had a few more kind of names that were involved. And I said, you know, are there any letters from so-and-so? And then they eventually found a big file of, of letters uh, from the New Food Supply Society, which was the essentially a lobbying group that, the, that these three guys started, uh, the two spies and Congressman Broussard, to uh, forward the hippo agenda. And then the, suddenly I had the New Food Supply Society archives. But even then, you know, this kind of work, I just, I left with such um, admiration for historians because, you know, I would spend a week uh, reading through, you know, 300 pages of letters and other documents or something, uh -huh. and, you know, carefully note, taking notes on each one and uh, coding them so I could search for them later. And then, you know, after two or three days of that, I would sort of zoom out and realize, okay, I've, I've now can... I can pull about three important sentences all this, you know, all of this work has given me, you know, information that I can distill into like two or three sentences. Um, so it didn't, it wasn't going so well. Uh, and, uh, and I guess it was, you know, back to this sort of editorial relationship. At one point I called you up and I said, you know, I just don't, I've just been working on this. So I just don't actually know if there's a story here because I, I don't know what is the story to tell. And uh, we kind of figured it out. I don't, do you remember, you said something to me. I remember there was a moment where you said something to me and then suddenly everything clicked and I just kind of like spit back an outline at you. Um, but no chance you remember what that brilliant thing that you said was or that conversation even. Uh, there's no, no, there's no chance of that. Well, I do, I okay. do remember that conversation. <laughs> I'll look back in, our, in the archives of our course. <laughs> yeah, it's not, yeah, I code it and everything and we'll we'll get a couple sentences out of it, out of it for the podcast. No, my what I remember uh is and this is a you know it was a kind of a rare opportunity because mostly we would assign a story uh you know we have some communication with the writer and you know hopefully along the way we're having communication with the writer but uh a lot of times someone just sort of like throws a draft at you and you kind of go from there. I think it's at least in our case, it's a little more rare to actually have like someone who has the whole everything in front of them and says, okay, like, how are we going to structure this? What kind of story do we have? And I remember the problem being that you basically have two characters who uh, intersect in this very dramatic way. They're supposed to kill each other and then they go apart and then they intersect again around bringing hippopotamuses to the United States and then they go apart and they, they, they sort of face off in different ways for the rest of their lives, but not directly. And it was a question of sort of like, is that a structure? Like, is there a way to sort of like pull things together and then pull them apart as opposed to have some sort of like more natural arc where they're like aiming to come together and then they finally do or something like that. That's right. Yeah. And I think what you said to me, actually, I think, yeah, I think the, the gist of that conversation was I originally, I was so locked basically onto the, to the hearing because that was, you know, I mean, that was what I did at Pop-Up. I basically described the hearing and then stepped back and said, who were these people? And I think it was after talking to you that I realized, well, this was really a story about Burnham. This was a much, you know, a story with a much larger scope. So it was sort of a story about Burnham and his life and what led him to the hearing. And then at the hearing, you would meet Duquesne. And then after that, you would sort of follow Duquesne. Um, after the hearing, as World War One starts and Duquesne basically becomes a, a saboteur for the for the Germans and then eventually a, a Nazi spy uh, during World War II and that uh, the hearing was, um, you know, just sort of act two in this, in this larger story. Um, and that in some ways that took a lot of the pressure off to figure out, you know, really dig down into the details of what these, how these exactly these characters had come together and what their motivations were. I mean, there was, I, I did get a lot of that, but, um, but yeah, the story wasn't the hearing. The hearing was, um, in a way, the kind of climax of the, of a much bigger story. Yeah, it was only, the the hearing was almost like a hinge in the middle between like, the story of Burnham's life, which was more interesting before the hearing, and the story of Duquesne's life, which was more interesting in some ways after the hearing. Although his whole life is quite, quite insane, 
Um, yeah, well, and and also I think the hearing you see this, you know, the hearing. So so they fought against each other in the in the Boer War, and then Duquesne uh, essentially becomes uh, an exile and, and ends up in you know he's captured and sent to a, a prison camp in Bermuda, and of course he escapes because he's always escaping places, and he winds up in New York, and he's basically just living this immigrant story where he's a newspaper reporter, he's hustling, he's trying to make a name for himself, and the hearing is really his chance. You know, at the time of the hearing, he's he's giving a series of of lectures um, around the East Coast about African animals and um, trying to become famous, basically. And and the hearing puts him on this big stage. And the hearing also puts him back in touch with Burnham. And and Burnham is thinking that you know he really admires Duquesne. You know, they're enemies, but they're enemies in this old-fashioned way where they really revere one another and they're kind of awed by the the other's capabilities. And uh, and Burnham realizes that. This is his chance to convert Duquesne. You know that Duquesne really hasn't found a new direction for himself since the war, and he can convert him to Americanism. You know that's the way Burnham describes it, and and that if he can figure out what made Duquesne such a such a twisted uh, man and kind of undo it and show him, you know, this is America. We can do things like bring in hippos, and this is going to be a great project and show you the kind of determination and ingenuity of the American character. You know, trying to assimilate Duquesne at the same time that he was uh, trying to assimilate hippos. But the the point being is that this was the this was a moment of of promise, both for the hippos, but also for for Burnham and Duquesne. And then after the hearing, it sort of just all goes to crap. A, mo- a moment of promise for the hippos. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we should have. Uh, we should come up with a. Did you read that uh, that John McPhee? Uh, he's done maybe more than one in the New Yorker of, of late, where he talks about story structure. And he has these sort of like crazy, like A, B, D, B, C, A structures to describe. Yeah, because like... he's talking about the, that David Brower book. <laughs> yeah. 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 I love that book. I think and it's, I, I love it more that I've read that piece now, you know, when you see the mechanics of it. Um, but how do you, so do you have an approach to like an actual uh, literal practical approach to structuring? Do you like, you know, do you use cards or do you put, do you have like a board in your office or do you just do no. it? no. No, I wish I was, I had some system. I wish it were that logical. I don't know. You know, I think that, um, you know, mostly I think re- if I'm out reporting a story, I'll often think I, you know, I'll know it when I'm kind of living the beginning or the end of the story sometimes. Um, and then that'll be like an anchor. Uh, but I just kind of make outlines, which um, get increasingly more um, detailed until I'm just kind of writing in the outline. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but no, I don't, I mean, I'm not that McPhee stuff is like completely over my head in terms of being that analytical of, about it. I just, I could never come up with some way to understand what I was doing in that detail. Um, it's also very, it's, I mean, you have to have a real luxury of time to sort of sit down and, and map everything very elaborately. I mean, I don't know if you felt that you had that much time with this. I mean, you've had, you've had the story for, well, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't really because, in a way, when we had that conversation in maybe August, mm-hmm. um, and then suddenly, you know, then I knew what the story was finally, and then there was more research I needed to do um, to fill in these gaps, and then, you know, I handed it in what in October, I think. Sounds right. Yeah. So, so I actually wrote this pretty fast. You know, it was like a lot of floundering around for like years and then suddenly just kind of clicked and then trying to pile up everything else I needed. The toughest part I, for me at least is, is always knowing what's not important. Um, and so once you know, um, you know, once you have the structure, it's, it's really easy to just throw stuff out, um, and, and dismiss things. And actually, you know, so much of what I was trying to gather during those years of, of, you know, poking in archives on and off. I mean, it wasn't, I was, I wasn't, I was obviously doing lots of other things too, but, um, so much of what I was after turned out not to be as important as I thought it was. And so after we spoke, then I had to go out and find all this other stuff that I had sort of ignored, like, you know, Burnham's time in Africa, uh, before the hearing, you know, in his young adulthood, hadn't really seemed that interesting or important to me. And then suddenly it was, it was incredibly important because, uh, it's, it's when he sees the animals that he's now wants to import into America. It's when, uh, he has a daughter who, uh, starves during a siege, which I think, you know, affects his, uh, you know, how serious he sees this meat shortage in, in America when he comes back. Um, it really, that's, that's the place where his character is created. 
And I hadn't really looked at any of that stuff beforehand. Well, did did you ever think about including this in Wild Ones? Yeah, I really wanted to, only because it was just so unbelievable. But um, yeah, someone asked me this the other day, and I, I just there was no way it was. I said, it, you know, it could have just it would have had to have been the just the really long footnote um, <laughs> because it didn't it didn't open into any of the themes of the book. Um, you know, it was it was just kind of really good yarn, and I think that as I was writing it for you, there's definitely a lot of kind of bigger picture things that happen about the condition of the country then and, um, you know, how optimistic or cynical people were then as opposed to, you know, in more recent times. But um, it, none of that really had anything to do with what I was doing in the book. So, uh, you know, I suppose I could have mentioned it or something offhandedly, but I kind of just kept it in my in my pocket. What, what about a full book? I mean, this, I think we ended up at 21,000 words, 21,500 maybe, something like that. Um, I mean, both of these characters are rich enough to make a full book. Did you consider going that way or talk to your agent? Yeah, um, I never really talked to anyone. But I did consider it. Um, but, you know, I guess, well, I didn't really know if there was enough research to make a, to do a full book that would be really interesting as opposed to just, you know, a biography of them. I mean, a biography of them would obviously be really interesting, but sort of framed around this meat thing. Um, I wasn't sure how much you could go away from that and you know without just kind of treading water yeah you know if there had been you know three times as much correspondence with them or if they had gotten further with the hippo thing you know and and there were other stories to tell about that project uh maybe but i kind of feel like i this was the right length for a story about this although i will say too that uh i remember at one point talking to uh chris collin another atavist uh author about this story and saying well you know maybe it should be a book and and uh, and I started telling him about uh, so while I was in the Stanford archives, I guess I just was name dropping Chris Collin. I don't think he actually really contributed to this realization <laughs> at all. But Chris Collin, great writer. <laughs> anyway, um, so yeah, so while I was in the Stanford archives, I found uh, oh, how would I even explain this? Okay, so Fritz Duquesne. There was a biography of Fritz Duquesne uh, written about 15 years ago by this uh, guy in L.A. named Art Ronnie, and. Art Ronnie told me that as a boy, he had found a book about Fritz Duquesne at a garage sale written in 1932 uh, by a guy named Clement Wood. And he had found this book and just became so enthralled by this character, Fritz Duquesne, much like young boys became enthralled by Fred Burnham, I would later learn, and just was obsessed with this guy, Fritz Duquesne. I mean, most of that book, it turns out, was not true. It was a very romanticized <laughs> account of Duquesne's life. Um, but from that time, he knew that he wanted to write a book about Fritz Duquesne, and he spent decades. He was a newspaper reporter. He worked in Hollywood doing something. I don't remember what. He was just assembling information about Fritz Duquesne. He has a whole basement full of, of stuff. Um, and it was like this lifelong quest to write about Fritz Duquesne. And it was really moving listening to him talk about it. And then when I was at the archives in Stanford, at Burnham's archives, there was a book about Burnham, uh -huh. which was a historical novel called uh, King of Scouts. And it was a, a novel based on his life, but obviously a lot of liberties had been taken. And this guy who wrote this book had like five pseudonyms himself. And his <laughs> papers were at Stanford as well. And I never found another thing that this, this guy published. Um, Peter Van Wyck, I think, was the name he published the book under. And Peter Craigmo, I think, was his real name. And he had spent like 25, 30 years writing this book about Burnham. It had gone through different iterations. At first, it was a biography. Then it was uh, uh, totally fiction. You know, it, it just morphed. And he had gone to South Africa several times. And you could see in his papers the obsession that he had with this with this guy, you know, like it became a diary of his life. You know, it was like 1983, he gets his first computer. And now he can type up all the notes that he'd been taking longhand and organize them. And, uh, you know, just like the hall of like the, <laughs> the last 30 years, we're spooling across this guy's <laughs> quest to write this book. And, you know, he had sent it to agents. He had sent it to different friends to edit it. Um, and I was just like, man, this is crazy that there's these, you know, each one of these guys had this complete obsessive, uh, you know, chronicler of their their life. So in any case, this is all a long way to explain that. I thought that if I did do a book, and it turned out that there it wasn't really enough. Maybe I could somehow pivot to also talk about these these two um, authors. That somehow there might have been some kind of resonance. I don't know if there is. So I mean, <laughs> just wasted ten minutes explaining it. Um, and then, well, then it would get into your own uh, 
like you spent 10 years and finally you're finishing this exactly, book. Exactly, trying like, to do ru- both of ruined them. your life. <laughs> right. Well, I've just spent 15 minutes talking about it, so that's fine. <laughs> I apologize. That's a quality of this story, though, that there's really not any way to get into it without sort of like providing a more elaborate version. It's very, very difficult to encapsulate any portion of it on its own, besides just saying, like, once people tried to bring hippos to the United States... Did, yeah, I really didn't work. No, I mean, as I said to you, I didn't really know how we were going to talk about this. And I actually suggested that someone else ask me the questions because I felt like it's so easy to gloss over just the obvious parts of the story because they're, these two men's lives were so extraordinary and go to all these different places. I mean, there's, you know, you read about World War One, you read about World War Two, you read about colonial wars in Africa. It sort of all comes out of this story that must make it sound like a really unwieldy um story but um yeah i was sort of surprised by how rich the whole thing was just from f- having found that one transcript well now now we got it out and now uh we get into the part where we try to sell copies of it which is a uh, it's the the burden that the atavist bears as a digital publisher who asks people to pay for stuff but you're also coming off of uh spending a lot of time being out you know, selling wild ones. And I want to talk about that a little bit, partly because you took a kind of a unique approach to it. Um, and I'm sort of curious about how that whole experience felt afterwards. So you can give the brief on it or I can, but um, basically you kind of went on tour, but also with the band. Yeah. So, um, right. So while I was writing uh, wild ones, I was talking to a friend of mine named Chris Funk, who's a, uh, in this, he had just started this band called Black Prairie. With uh, he's also in the Decemberists, and so it's a few folks from the Decemberists, a few other people, and we had talked about somehow collaborating, where you know maybe they could write like a soundtrack to the book, even though we didn't quite know what that meant. And so then it actually happened, um, which to my surprise, I'd sort of given up on it, and then I just started getting these MP3 files of songs about. Um, they're basically like mostly instrumental songs to score scenes that I had written in the book, or you know, songs about certain characters. So you sent them a uh, galley? Yeah, I sent them, yeah, before a galley, I guess. Um, just a word doc, I think. Uh-huh. And yeah, and so they had just written these these songs, which actually, like, to me at least, it was really cool to hear. Like, the music did, it brought up a kind of nostalgia for, you know, talking to those people or being in those places. Um, and so when the book came out, they put out a record of, of these songs uh and when the book and the record came out together in may and so we decided to put together a show initially we did it for a a pop-up magazine thing here in san francisco did a did like a wild one show with stories about animals and then we did our our thing so it was about a half hour performance where um i was uh sort of telling a series of linked stories from the book uh, while black prairie orchestrated them behind me and then would occasionally, you know, kind of rise up and play a play a song or play ambient music. So it was almost the way a radio story would work, um, you know, with a, with a music playing under the the storyteller. Um, but it was really fun. Um, yeah, and it's actually there is a recording of it on ninety nine percent invisible. The podcast. Yeah, Roman so Mars go podcast. To that. Um, yeah, so so when we we did a tour, we did a few shows in in the summer, and then we did a, a tour of the East Coast in September. And Roman recorded all those shows and put one out. Um, and yeah, I, you know, it was um, so it was kind of cool, I guess, like to get in the weeds of like book publicity, which I don't claim to understand at all. But um, so my publisher wasn't going to send me on tour or anything. You know, they they organized some bookstore readings and things like that, um, and that kind of made sense to me because I'm not really sure what a book tour um, would have accomplished. Hmm. Uh, but this was a really cool way to do that anyway. Um, and it was a way to not just do a bookstore reading. Um, it was, I thought, much more fun. It was really nice just to be collaborating with people as someone who sits at a desk all day by himself. Um, and it paid for itself. You know, I was paid as an opening act. So we would do the show and then Black Prairie would play a set afterwards so oh, really? um yeah so i actually made money on the on the book tour um, well, what was the what was the ratio of sort of like this will be fun and these people are friends of yours and they're fun and you get to kind of like go on tour as a pseudo uh member of a rock band or indie band and to like i will sell copies of the book this way or and or like but promote the book right. in some buzzy way um i don't know i guess i kind of hoped it would 
it would help promote the book, but I didn't, I think I can honestly say that I didn't care too much whether it did. I mean, I felt like, um, you know, I, I don't understand how books get sold. Like it just doesn't seem there, there doesn't really seem to be a formula other than like going on the daily show or something. We'll sell books. Yeah. Um, so my strategy was sort of, you know, try to find some fun things to do that will get the word out about the book. And maybe some of those will work because quite frankly, no one knows what will work and the go-to options for promoting books are not really all that fun. Um, you know, they're like, you, you talk on the radio a lot and that's, that's fine, you know, but, um, you know, driving around the East coast in a van with a rock band of your friends was much more fun, I think. So that was, it was kind of cool, like on a superficial level, you know, I'm not going to lie. It was definitely like fun to pretend I was in a, a band, but like I said, it was also just fun to do a project with other people. And it was really fun to, do the show and then see people, you know, I mean, in terms of like, you know, we go out and we report these stories and then we write them and you kind of want to create an emotional experience for people or recreate the emotions that you felt when you're reporting. And then you get up and so you try to do that in the writing and it's really hard. Um, but then you get up on a stage with a band behind you and they're playing, you know, music and it's like cheating because they're, <laughs> they're kind of cueing emotions in people. I mean, people, you know, there was a moment in the show where some, sometimes people would cry, you know, um, which was kind of amazing. Uh, so it was really cool just to experiment in in that way um, in thinking about different ways to tell a story. And then especially talking to people afterward at those shows was, was always really great um, because you felt like now they were kind of invested in the book and, you know, they were excited to read the book. So, yeah. So yeah, I thought, you know, I don't, I don't know if we, I mean, I, we sold a good number of books at those shows, like compared to a bookstore reading, mm -hmm. uh, but I wouldn't say it's like, you know, yeah, I could have gone on the daily show probably and sold a lot more books, but um, <laughs> Why don't you just go on the daily show then. Yeah. Well, we tried, you know, <laughs> we tried to go on Colbert. All the, those, those guys have all been on Colbert a bunch and, uh, or you know, Chris at least had, he he did, he'd been the guitar when Colbert had his like guitar Mageddon thing, oh yeah, yeah like, with the green Elliot Spitzer was the judge. It was him versus Chris Funk. So uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, so yeah, so I think as a as a business thing, it worked. Like we it cleared a bar of you know it was a good use of you know a good investment, I guess. Um, but it was uh, but it was also just like really rewarding, I think, as a as a writer who doesn't get to do things like that very much. Yeah. And how how do you how do you feel about the book experience in general? I mean, it's to my eye got if not universally positive reviews. I read a lot of really great reviews of it and it's on multiple best of 2013 lists including the New York Times. And do you I mean last time we talked for the podcast, I think you were in the middle of it and sort of uncertain of what role it would eventually play you know like in your career but do you feel like the book was 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 a positive thing to do do you feel in a different place than when you before you wrote the book um whoosh, i don't i don't know um i mean it didn't hurt that's you know i feel confident about that um i'm not sure i mean i really liked writing a book like i really liked the process of it, it was, I, I thought it was great um and I guess I just my big thing was I didn't want to put out a book that, you know, no one read or, you know, ever just instantly got forgotten. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, it's like it didn't it didn't sell like wonderfully or anything. You know, it wasn't like a, a bestseller or even close. Um, but I just was really glad that. Yeah, like, I was really glad to see that people reviewed it and that, you know, people I didn't know had heard about it, you know, like you'd go on, like I'd go on Twitter and someone would have read it that I, I didn't know that person and didn't tell them <laughs> to read it. So, um, so I guess in retrospect, the bar was maybe pretty low that I was setting to feel like, you know, what would be constitute, you know, a, a good enough job. Um, but, uh, but I cleared it, you know, so, uh, so I don't know. I, I really, I can't say like what it did for my career, but, um, but I definitely, uh, I feel really positive about it, you know, think, thinking about it. It was a really good, good year, you know. It was a good, uh, it was good to have that at the, at the focal point of my year, I guess. And did you feel like you could go, assuming the ideas lined up and you had an idea that you wanted to do, you could just go from one book to another uh, and just, you know, there's people who shift from magazine writing and they write a book and then they just start writing books and living off book advances, I think. 
people still do that. Um, maybe, I don't know. Uh, yeah. maybe, maybe they don't. Um, so, so could I do that in the sense of like, is a publisher receptive to me doing that? Or could I do that for my own constitution? I meant more for your own constitution. Like, did you kind of think, you know what, I, I want to get back to doing something that feels a little more bite-sized and I can cover a wider range of, of subjects and that a year, year and a half is a long time to be, Got it. be in yeah. something. Um, I don't know. I think, well, I mean, I don't have an idea for another book right now. I think if I did, I would pursue it. Um, but it was a really big relief to get to write about other things, um, you know, this year and do other magazine stories. So yeah, I don't, I, I would like to continue to do both. Um, but I definitely, yeah, I mean the, I guess sometimes people are surprised that anyone who writes a book wants to write another book, you know, that, <laughs> that or at least right away, you know, that, that you, you would say that right away as opposed to needing some kind of buffer where you say you're never going to do it again. Mm -hmm. But, but no, I, I would do it again right now if, if I found the right thing to do. But right now you're, you're, you're doing Times Magazine pieces and the two, there were two really fun ones this year. One was, well, fun is maybe not correct for the monk seals piece, but there was one about monk seals being killed in, Hawaii, and then there was this recent one about crazy ants that I feel like people, I'm just going to say from someone who's talked to you about the crazy ant story, that the the wider public seemed to like that story a lot more than you. People love that story. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. I, was, <laughs> I guess I was a little surprised. I don't know. Um, can you say bad things about your own work <laughs> on this I, podcast? Yeah. It's place, a, it? No, I mean, uh, I, I don't want you to, I'm not, I'm not trying to goad you into saying something yeah. negative about your own work, but I feel like uh you no, I mean I was very glad that it had that people seemed to like it and I you know I I liked it I wasn't disgraced by it or anything you know I'm not like backing away from it I just I guess I felt like um you know I had to do it really really quickly so wait uh, before you so it was about so, oh right an so infestation about, of ants in the United States in Texas well, infestation is a pretty tame word I mean yeah, sorry. like a uh, humongous swarm of ants like covering large parts of texas um it's terrifying yeah, it's a terrifying read it really is terrifying yeah um it's uh yeah these ants are have for about 10 years have been advancing through texas and they don't bite um or they bite but it doesn't itch or cause much discomfort um but uh but there are just so many of them that they they create almost these solid masses of ants that will pour out of people's air conditioning ducts and um, get into electronics and cars or computers and just, you know, fry them. Um, and it's, yeah, it is like a horror film in, in a weird way. Um, and so, yeah, so I, so I think I, what happened was I just had to do the story really quickly and, uh, I didn't ever really, it didn't, I didn't feel like I was doing it as, as carefully as I would have liked maybe. And so I didn't, I didn't let myself feel good about it in a weird way. Um, but, uh, I definitely felt like I was given a really good story to tell. Um, so I, it's not, you know, I'm really glad that people responded to it well, but I don't know, I guess I didn't, I didn't get the feeling of like when I turned it in or when it got published that like, oh, this is going to be, you know, really great story. I guess I was just a little, um, feeling a little sheepish about it. Hmm. How did you, how did you get started writing about animals in the first place? Because when you, early in your career, your first stories were not. I mean, they had a little science tinge to them, some of them, but you, you sort of like hit on a run of animal-related stories, including the book, including the American Hippopotamus, now maybe at the tail end of that, that makes it almost seem like you're a general interest writer who actually has a beat of some sort. How did, how did that start? Yeah, you know, the first story that I actually, well, I guess the second story that I ever did for the Times magazine was about uh, pigeon control. Oh, yeah. About these innovative methods of, it was actually just about these people in Hollywood who, a neighborhood association that were trying to get rid of their pigeons in a humane way. And they wound up, uh, because they didn't want to kill the pigeons, they realized they had to attack the source of the pigeon's food. And that was a an elderly Armenian seamstress who was feeding <laughs> hundreds of pounds of seed to the pigeons every day out of the back of her SUV. And so they basically made this woman's life a living hell. Um, and, and which in a way was the ecologically most sensible way to attack the problem. Um, you, you know, you can get rid of pigeons by getting rid of their food. And if you torment this woman and follow her and take video of her and call the press about her, 
uh, and to the point where she gets so fed up that she wants to go back to Armenia, which she did, uh, <laughs> you have succeeded in uh, making an ecological pressure on the on the pigeons. So in any in any case, um, that I, that sort of was really fun. I mean, I, I've always been interested in animals, but you know, I, not to the degree where I would have thought I would have spent so long writing about them. But um, but what I liked about that story was just that the pigeons were this problem that in a way couldn't be solved in a way that people felt good about. Mm -hmm. uh, there was no clear answer to them. And, and of course the, you know, the pigeons are just this Rorschach, you know, they can't, they can't respond or talk it out. Um, and so I like that in terms of a story to tell a story about very passionate people trying to solve a problem, getting minimally, you know, minimal to no feedback or, you know, any guidance on how to solve the problem uh, was really interesting because it's just sort of people in their purest form of, of you know, knocking their heads against the wall or what, whatever you want to call it. And I really, you know, in a way, like when I wrote Wild Ones, I was writing about endangered species in the same way, um, you know, as a, they're not a nuisance so much, but their extinction is a nuisance, you know, they're, that the problem we're trying to solve is that they're going away. Um, so it was really, in a way, kind of the same storyline. Yeah, it's really what what the people interacting with the animals, what it says about that. I mean, that takes us back to the crazy ants because a lot of that is about the people just struggling to like overcome this problem that seems to have no solution. Exactly, yeah. I mean, because there's never, I mean, there are often solutions, but they're never really clear-cut solutions or they're never 100% solutions. You know, there was, there was I mean, like in the, that pigeon example, it's, you know, they, they, this woman, this seamstress goes back to Armenia and, uh, and now the, the Hollywood people, uh, feel terrible because they're worried that if the food is just cut off, you know, cold Turkey, the pigeons are, are going to die as opposed to just slow down their breeding. So, uh, the story ended with them actually going to Home Depot and buying a bunch of bags of seed and, and starting to put it out for the, for the pigeons. So, um, yeah, I think that's animals have a weird way of doing that to people of making them do kind of amazing things like that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like feed pigeons that they were originally trying to get rid of. Exactly, yes, yes. But you, you, you come out of these stories, you know, like the ant story or, or uh, I'm thinking also of the, the monkey that was on the loose in Tampa Bay. Uh, and they, they, you always emerge from the story with like a broader sort of what it all means thinking about people and about America in many cases a lot of these times these are it's like sort of very American stories and I always wonder and this was true in the hippopotamus one when it came in as a draft like is that do you have that almost like going in is that part of what interests you about the story like you look at a story and you say I think this there's something in this that tells us about ourselves or has a lesson about America or do you just is that like an epiphany during the course of the story Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'm trying to think about it sort of case by case. I think, I mean, I wouldn't say I have it figured out, um, but I think, you know, when I started writing for the Times Magazine, the editor was was Jerry Marzorati, and he was, um, you know, the magazine under him, it really felt like stories needed that kind of, you know, sociological thrust, or at mm -hmm. least the kind of stories that I was going to do. You know, it wasn't just enough to have, like, a good yarn with some good characters. Um, and I really appreciate that because those are the kinds of stories I like to read. So I think that kind of trained me that if I was going to pitch a story, I at least had to, you know, be able to suggest what might come out of it. Um, but like with the monkey story, so yeah, I did this story about a, a, a monkey that was on the loose in Tampa for like three and a half years. And I, I went right before the Republican convention was happening in Tampa. And that was something where I had been reading about this monkey like in local media know for years and then when the convention happened you know I just sort of it's just sort of clicked that everything I've been reading about this monkey is almost this parable of the political conversation you know should the monkey be free is the government blundering around wasting its money trying to capture it calling it a nuisance you know and, and unsafe when actually it's just a cute monkey and um, you know th this was like the political conversation of, of that moment and so I thought well, it would be really cool to tell that story right in the, in, you know, leading up to the convention because the kind of the 
parable aspect of it would probably just pop right out. So that one I did pitch, you know, that way I said, mm-hmm. yeah, that's exactly what I want to do. Um, so I don't know, I guess, I mean, I don't feel like every story I do necessarily gets to that kind of point, but, uh, but I think sometimes I have a sense that they could. The thing I like about it, I mean, I feel like this was true in the hippo piece was that it feels organic from the story. It doesn't feel like, uh, the sort of nut graph approach to a story where it's sort of like, I'm going to tell you what this all means so that you will continue reading this story. It actually usually operates in the other direction where it's, here's a story. And as you go along, you'll sort of accrue this meaning that then by the end, you can kind of like point to it and say, see, this is, this tells us something and people understand it because they've sort of like, it's been, uh, they've gotten it through osmosis almost reading the piece. Right. Yeah. I mean, and I, cause I'm terrible at writing nut graphs. Like I never know what the story, <laughs> I never know why people should keep reading basically, you know, <laughs> um, like it's, that's the menace of my professional existence is trying to figure that out. Um, because often you have to t- explain that to an editor, you know, um, before you even, before you even start. And I think for me, I really, it does really take me, I mean, often I don't even know as I'm writing, um, you know, what the kind of bigger point is. But I feel like I like to read, you know, I like to just read like a good crime story or something like that too. But um, the thing that gives me the most pleasure is always when there's at least a suggestion of some kind of, you know, essayistic point, I guess. All right. Well, I think we're done. Do you think this is, do you think we've done this without being too weird? I have no, I have absolutely no idea. (laughs) I think everything I do is weird. Um, uh, Yes. Good. Well, that's what Twitter's for, people. Did we explain the hippo thing at all? Like, I feel like I have no idea what people are going to think about that. Story. I feel like you. I feel like you spend a while explaining. I mean, if you if you, if we can't explain it in that amount of time, like it's okay, it's essentially unexplainable. All right, good. Um, but well, it may be essentially unexplainable. I guess I don't know. That's the worst way. I was about to say, everyone go out and buy the <laughs> buy American hippopotamus so you can well, know you more about it. it because I can't explain it. Well, then it must possible. be it's explainable. It was explainable in the context of the yes the a story that you can purchase. Well, I'm a writer. I wrote it all down. <laughs> I'm not a not a talker. We should have done this whole thing to music. Exactly. Yeah. All right, John. All right, Evan. Thanks for doing it. Thank you for doing it. <laughs> Talk to you later. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for listening to Long Form Podcast, both this one and previous ones in 2013 and before. I'm Evan Ratliff uh, from The Atavist. Thanks a lot to John Boalem, my good friend, for coming on and talking about his story and his book, Wild Ones, which you should check out. The story is called American Hippopotamus. You can find it at atavist.com. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer, and to our editor, Lauren Kirchner. Uh, We'll see you next week. Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.